Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, a podcast about the everyday struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Purcell. And I'm Timothy Plain. We have both made our own independent short films. We've had some success and some failures. And each week we discuss filmmaking topics, give you our point of view on them, not as experts, but as two filmmakers trying to figure it out for ourselves. And welcome nice. to, yeah, nice new intro, huh? Fancy. <laughs> um, Every week is going to be a different intro yeah, from here on out. exactly, until we get one that actually works. Um, so this is episode 84. We haven't been calling out the episode numbers, but we figure we might as well start it up again, because uh, that's always fun. And uh, this week we have a special guest. His name is Isaac Pingree. He's a local filmmaker who's distributing his latest movie, the Fred Eaglesmith Traveling Steam Show. That's a that's a mouthful. I just call it the Fred Doc, but uh, that works. <laughs> uh, he wants to tell us how he's going to get it done and the different w- way he's going. That's not traditional. Uh, so yeah, say hello, Isaac. Hello, everyone, and hello, Ulrich and Timothy. Hey, Isaac. Thanks for coming on. Uh, thank you yeah, guys for yeah. having me. I listen regularly. That's cool. Do you, so do you guys know each other from Strange Thing? No. We, we know each so, other from first grade. Yeah. Oh, no way. Because I only I just saw a picture of you guys online together on the set of Strange Thing. Right. And I was like, oh, so they've worked together before. Yeah. So we've known each other for like 25 years or something like that. Oh, my god. Something ridiculous. And uh, yeah, we both got... We're, I, Isaac was uh, doing filmmaking before me. And then I used to help him out when he was doing it in high school. And then I just kind of caught the bug from him. And uh, here we are. But we'll talk a little bit about that because, like, the story actually, what's relevant to this conversation actually starts way back in, in college, basically. So, um, yeah. I yeah. want to hear about the the bitter jealousy of how Isaac got to make his first feature film before you did. I wasn't jealous. I was like, oh, my God, he's making a movie. Oh, geez, how could I, like, be involved? <laughs> like, I want to help out. And I want to do this. I want to do that. And that was kind of more of the energy. <laughs> um, oh, okay. But Let's he, rewind back in time, Isaac, all the way back to when you were born. Okay. And tell us how you got to this point in your life. All right. Yeah. Mm, I'm going to skip maybe the first 15 years. Uh, <laughs> oh, really? That many? Oh, okay. But, uh, you know, just I feel like everybody else our age was, you know, messing around with their dad's video camera or whatever else. Well, what was the movie that, that inspired you to pick up the camera and try things out? In terms of what switched it from, like, doing, like, little sketches where you just, like, set up the camera in a kitchen and pretend to do, like, a cooking show. <laughs> right. And then into, like, oh, yeah. there's, like, shots and you, like, build a story. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I would say maybe it was Army of Darkness. Mm. Oh, wow. It's a good one. Sam Raimi and Robert Rodriguez were definitely like the the two directors that I was really into in high school when I started getting serious about filmmaking. Yeah, very do-it-yourself type guys, both of them. Right. So then we can use that just to skip a few more years. So I was pretty determined to like be like them and make a, a feature film as soon as I possibly could. And so at like uh, 19, well, I, first, I, kind of, I teamed up with my cousin Mike, who had, you know, eight years on me, and a friend of mine who I'd met through my oldest sister, who had, you know, six years on me, and he wrote the script. And uh, my cousin Mike was kind of starting a career as a, as a lighting guy and a shooter, and I brought him on to help produce it with me and shoot it. At like 19, I started trying to raise the money to, to make this feature fiction kind of a modern western was the idea in the small yeah. town in northern california what's the name of this movie the movie's called day of vengeance now when we were making it it was called blood loss <laughs> okay but that was like kind of like more of like 
blood like family because the the lead character uh-huh. was researching his dad's death um but it it uh much later, I guess I'm here to talk about distribution. Uh, when we got a sales agent, he was like, "That's just sounds like a horror film, so we should come up with something <laughs> yeah. different." But uh, what, interesting. Yeah. One thing I want to like point out here is so Isaac's 19; he's going off to raise his money for his feature. He'd already made like three shorts, and I think at least two of one of which was well, two of which I think were really good. And then the blood loss one was like you didn't you weren't in blood loss at all, right? You you hadn't been in that the short, right? Right. So he made he made a, a, multiple shorts. Then he made blood loss, and then he made then he used that to, ra- to help raise the money to make the feature. So at nineteen, he'd already done what I've been doing for the last five years, basically. Yeah, in, but- within <laughs> high school, <laughs> essentially, and he was like already ra- going out to raise the money at nineteen, and I'm like raising my money now for my movie. So, so it's kind of interesting to put that in perspective that he like kind of did the same path, like but years and years ago, <laughs> much younger. Right? Yeah. Right, but I think if you you condense that path, uh, and then maybe the the steps aren't uh, as the the foundation is not as secure. So I think you will have much more secure foundation on your path of doing this. Yeah, well, I, I mean, we'll see that we're basically still in the same place. Right, exactly. Who knows? <laughs> we'll have to have this conversation in four years and then see <laughs> what, what, where right. if I end up so, somewhere else. <laughs> Isaac, what made you think that at 19 you can make a feature film? I think because uh, Robert Rodriguez did it and Sam Raimi did it. That was really it. Like, not. I don't mean to sound like I was completely obsessed with them or that they were my whole world. Like, I was into... Scorsese and, uh, you know, uh, got endorsed and well, like, you know, I had a brain, like the movie I made was very much trying to be like a Sergio Leone kind of thing. So I, you know, I was kind of into everything, but those guys, I guess, were kind of an obsession. And so really it was just like, hey, if they can do it, why can't I? This, that seems like the quickest possible path to making a career out of this. That's what I want to do. Did you have a lot of confidence from your short films or at that point had your short films not lived up to your standard yet? And you're just like, that's okay. I'll just, I'll do it in my feature. Yeah, definitely. The second one where everything, especially right when you make something at like 17, then you make something at 18, like they're getting so much better that you're like, this is, I just need to keep, keep doing that and make them better. But also you don't, you know, I think, um, you, you don't know what you don't know. You guys talk about that, but it's so much more true. <laughs> yeah, don't at, know what you don't at, know. <laughs> uh, at like 19. So you just, right. You know, like I think when you guys talk about like Ulrich raising money and stuff, and I talked to Ulrich about this, and it's like, I really thought this, like when I was pitching this and just to like family and friends or whoever would listen, like that this was going to be a good investment for them. Like I was really offering them something like this is you're gonna want to put money in this you're gonna regret it because like you know what i mean which like right, makes no right. sense and huge. it was a terrible investment none of them have made any money off of it but right, right, and now right. i still feel guilt about that but it's like i i really thought yeah. I, I really thought it was gonna be a great investment for yeah. that you thought it was gonna skyrocket I, was, yeah. I don't know if i thought it was necessarily gonna skyrocket but kind of what I thought was like the floor and the ceiling was different than what it actually is, but I didn't know anything. Right. <laughs> right. Did you think at that time that money was holding you back? And what I mean by that is when I, and I'll use myself as an, as an example, 
when I was younger and I was making movies and I was doing it for like 500 bucks or a thousand bucks a pop, I was always thinking if I just had more money, I could pull off what I really want to do. And so I just imagined that if I could just get access to the money, I would make, I would be able to make the kinds of films that I wanted to make. So at this point, when you're 19, did you think if I could just get the money, I know I can make something of high quality? I, I knew that there's like a minimum I needed to actually do it, but I was really like kind of the romantic idea of the low budget thing. And uh, Robert Riga's talked about, uh, I forget if it's like on the El Mariachi commentary or in Rebel Without a Crew, like having the money hose. And if you have a problem, you can just, if you have it on like a big movie, you just use your money hose and you spray money at it until the problem goes away. <laughs> yeah, but the, the beauty of not having money is you have to come up with a solution that doesn't involve the money hose. And that's what actually is creativity. And that's what makes your movie good. So I did really like try and uh, take that idea to heart. Or maybe I believed in it too much that I could overcome, you know, more than I actually could overcome with with a small budget. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how much money did you end up raising? I raised forty three thousand originally. Uh -huh. By the time you know it was all finished, had spent closer to sixty. I had credit carded some stuff. I had uh, gone back to my investors for you know a few hundred each more. Uh, so yeah. But that was you and know, how many shoot days did years. you get out of that? So this is where it's totally different than what you guys are like. What is the norm? That was thirty six shoot days. Oh my gosh, amazing! <laughs> yeah, but I mean, your, your crew is what like four people or five people? Three? Maybe. No, it was yeah, three or four, including me. Sometimes just three, sometimes four, and yeah. that includes and me. you and you shot on film. Yeah, yeah. This was 10 years ago now. So this was 2006 and the good HD cameras were like $850 a day to rent or whatever it was. More than that, maybe. I don't remember now. And 2006, yeah, because I remember uh, that was around when I started shooting movies outside of college. And yeah, we were shooting on mini DV at that point. Right. So it still seemed like to me 16 was how you got it to look like a real movie. And yeah. that was also, again, what Rodriguez and Raimi did. So that just seemed like that's what I need to do, too. It's so funny because yeah, I was watching your movie on Amazon Prime, which anyone who's listening to this, you guys can go find it. We'll put the link in our show notes. But for me now that it, 10 years has passed and we're now in a digital age where everything looks like really pristine, when I saw your movie, I just thought you had made a stylistic choice to shoot it like that so it looks more kind of like grindhousey and then <laughs> talking to you i realized oh my god yeah we just lived in a day and age where really we didn't have options right oh what was i gonna say oh and you had had you shot all your shorts on film too or just a, most of them no i guess a mixture of mini dv and then uh some stuff on super 8 and then the last one i had done before that was also on 16 mm, mm, cool yeah. How much of that sixty thousand went towards processing film oh, and buying most film of it? Renting like the, the vast majority mm -hmm. of it was the film That's processing, so and then still the telecine, you know, because I was still editing in Final Cut, so that was uh, as mm -hmm. expensive as buying or processing the film, you know. Man, 
Yeah. If you had waited a few years to like when the better cameras <laughs> had come out and you would have like saved so much money, like you could have probably taken like, you know, spent $20,000 on equipment costs and, and that stuff and taken the rest and put it into the movie, yeah. you know? No, I agree. That would but, be uh, nice to put more stuff on the screen. But it was an interesting time because you're right. Like it, it wasn't quite there yet at 2006. Like I don't think the red had come out or like it had maybe just come out and it was like probably not very many people knew how to use it or it wasn't, um, it just wasn't where it is now, you know? Yeah. I remember when the red came out and it was like, holy crap, like that looks amazing. It looks so good. So, so let's changed everything. Let's skip then to like the movie's done. Now you're going to do distribution. Like talk about what that was like. Yeah. So, uh, made a, you know, a screener of the, the whole thing and a, a trailer. And, uh, I just, uh, I got a list from somewhere on the internet of, you know, sales agents and, uh, or distributors, but mostly sales agents, I guess. And just, uh, went to all their websites. And if they had a, uh, you know, uh, a contact where you could send stuff, just sent them, you know, the screener with a note. Um, and if they had an email, I'd send them, you know, an email with a link to the trailer and ask if I could get an address to send them the screener. Wow. I kind of forget now how many I sent it to, but probably. And then how many sales agents did you hear back from? Maybe one out of four or five, probably. Like, do you hear back from, even if it's like a no, even when I got no's, I was really excited because I remember like (laughs) pinning them on the wall. Like, Hey, this is something, a real place got back to me and said, no. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So, so as I interrupted you, how many did you say it was probably like 20, 30, something like, like that? Yeah, yeah, I'd say at least a couple dozen, maybe more. And so how did you decide on your sales agent? Was it the only person who said yes? Or like, how did you find that person? So one of the ones who said no said, send this to Circus Road Films, who weren't sales agents, but producers reps. Only a couple said yes. And it seemed kind of clear to me the best one of the bunch was uh, Artist View Entertainment. Um, and I had sent it to the guys at Circus Road and they liked it and wanted to rep the movie. But there's a fee involved in that because they would like be repping it to get you sales agents, better sales agents or distributors. And so then I went to L.A. and uh, Mike and I had meetings with both of them and kind of decided to go with both of them. So we went with Mm. uh, Artist View Entertainment to rep us for foreign sales and then for whatever reason, probably because just the Circus Road guys were good salesmen, we decided, like, not that we really knew much of anything at all, that they would be better at finding us a domestic distributor. And that was, and originally their fee was like uh, $5,000. And, it, it, and you know, that comes out of their 10% or whatever if they make the sale, but you pay them up front. Um and I, th- I think we, because we we're like, well, we're already carving out foreign or whatever. So I forget if we got them down to 25 or 35. Um, but it wasn't like, you know, some hard driving uh, negotiation because it was like friendly. And it was like, we want to work with these guys. These they seem cool. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, that's like looking back on it and not at all like these guys were uh, scamming us or anything like that. But if they're really confident they can sell the movie, like I'm sure there are movies they rep where there is no upfront fee because they know they're going to make a sale 
And so their 10% right. is going to be enough. But an up, the upfront fee is like, well, if we're going to spend a, a year trying to find you a distributor, I mean, obviously not full time, they're repping other things as well. Uh, and we fail, like we still need to be compensated for our time. And that's kind of what the upfront fee is covering, you know? Right, right, right. But that's hindsight, right? Yeah. That's you looking back and seeing that. But at that moment, were you just psyched that you had people that were going to go out there and help you find a deal? Yeah, it seemed like this was, this was, they're obviously going to do better than I did. And they are real people in LA and they seem like maybe they'd be useful to know down the line. And uh, yeah, seemed like a good deal. And I'm, this is, so we're fast forwarding. What am I like? 20, two or 23 now you know what i mean because it was like two years of post on the movie and then a year of kind of we're probably in that first year of trying to get distribution going at this point yeah so three years since you shot it yeah at least yeah wow so then what happened like like how many people did you meet with or did they or do they how did it work basically i guess like with when they're trying when once you sign them on and they're trying to, to find distrib- distributors for you how did that process work do they just call you and say oh are th- this is the deal from these people or how many offers did they get for you did they get any offers for you how, how did it all so work so the first thing they did was they negotiated our foreign deal with artist view entertainment but it basically came out to be the same deal because they carved 5% out of what he was, uh, of of his share, uh, Scott Jones, who runs Artist View Entertainment. But then they gave that to themselves for, not like behind my back, but that, you know, that's kind of their part of their whatever for negotiating that. And then maybe they redlined a few other things. I kind of forget now. It was a long time ago. Like they were sending me the contract that was going back and forth with him, but... I don't think it really substantially changed that deal, but it felt like, okay, these guys are in my corner and they improved that a little bit. It certainly didn't get any worse for me. And so uh, then Artist View Entertainment then had the rights for every territory outside of the US and Canada, I guess, to sell that and take their 20% or whatever uh, with expenses capped at $40,000. So they were going to redo artwork and things like that. And that was that guy's idea to change the title. Um, So that was all with Artist View. Meanwhile, Circus Road, still under the title of Blood Loss with my original artwork. Not that I had done it, but um, a guy I got, Sean Collins, who did that. Uh, Like my screener, they were like, no, we like your screener. That's good enough for us to use to try and find a domestic distributor. And then all I would get from them was like a spreadsheet that was like, these are the places we're going to send it to. And then it would kind of, they'd kind of fill it out as like, it'd either be a no, or there was like a, something that's kind of like, was like in the middle, like we're getting passed up to the next guy. And then, you know, theoretically like they want it, but we never got one of those, but it was like 20 ish. I still have the spreadsheet somewhere mid tier companies. And I remember thinking at the time, like, Hey, this is even a good list to have. Next time, I can send it to these companies without them if I want to. <laughs> right, right, right. So what was going on? I'm trying to think what, what the market was um, roughly 10 years ago. I guess that there was still Blockbuster videos, right? There were still Blockbuster, and Blockbuster was trying to replicate Netflix and like do block online hmm. thing. But the bottom of the DVD market, I guess, you know, we're like right in, right, right after the economy collapsing, had kind of fallen out. So like where oh, you feel geez. like 2000, you know what I mean? 
Yeah, that that yeah. that streaming hadn't really taken off yet, or hadn't at all. But it, like everyone knew this was gonna be the future. But Netflix had come out with the DVDs, and that was already like taking a chunk out of the the rental market, right? The actual like brick and mortar stores, right? And I feel like early two thousands. I mean, wasn't like everybody was just loading up on DVDs, like DVDs were still cool and you just go to the store and buy 10 of them. Maybe that was just me at 15, but right. (laughs) I I still do that. I have Blu-rays up my butt at my house. (laughs) Right. uh... You know, because, but like there were like circuits, it wasn't just Best Buy. There were like these other places. I don't know if Circuit City comes to mind, but like. Good guys. Right. And that, that, you know, and there would be, you know, bargain bin DVDs. That was kind of falling out and streaming hadn't quite come on yet to fully take its place, kind of the on-demand stuff. Right, yeah. That's like one of the stories I can tell myself to be like, we weren't so far off from actual success. It was just bad timing, you know? Right. Yeah, because apparently at that time was like, that was when it was starting to fade away, but there was like a really good model for independent filmmakers to make money back, especially on something that's so low budget that you could probably sell it to foreign distributors and and domestic distributors and just for a small dvd release and get your money back and i think that's what rodriguez was trying to do right just go like straight to i think at the time vhs and just get like a a vhs release and make his money back off of his seven thousand dollar feature yeah right totally and that was my kind of that's where i thought was the floor like i thought the floor was we sell this and it only makes $50,000, but then we get to do it again because everyone's happy and yeah. and I get to keep getting better at making these. And maybe right. the ceiling is, who knows? You know? But that yeah, to- definitely. I thought that it would be an easier kind of direct-to-video market or direct-to-DVD. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. well let's finish. What, and what happened? Oh, yeah, what happened? Artist View was able to make some foreign sales right away. Uh, I have the list here. And these, I'm happy to go into all the numbers with you, right? So they made a few, like yeah, like, love like right away, they sold TV rights and DVD rights separately to, you know, Russia. So that was $3,000 each. It's a big country. Right. They're, they got a good <laughs> yeah. deal because Thailand paid 4000 for just, not Thailand, but whatever company in Thailand paid 4000 <laughs> right. for- uh, The government right. of Thailand yeah. bought your movie. Well, that's how it's listed on my uh, financial report from them is just the yeah, country. Right. And then what rights they've sold in that country. Right. Maybe they don't like me saying these these things, but- uh, oh, They don't care. 4000 for uh, just the the- dvd rights and uh somebody in turkey bought the pay tv and video on demand rights for three thousand so but there were like a few of these hit right away like as soon as they took it to whatever the first um what are these things called what's the one you you want to go to our market yeah afm whatever the big uh There's like a few of them, right? There's one at Cannes right. and there's, yeah. Right. The phone market. Apparently AFM's like the, the domestic, like US market, but then there's ones for like Europe, I think is Cannes. Right. Um, right. Maybe Berlin or something like that. But yeah, there's only like three, three of these markets, I think. Right. That, right. That represents the whole world. And they kind of said like, you know, he has a big library and like the first year is when they are going to really push you know, your film, you know, the new films into his library at these right. markets. And that's when they're going to be, you know, kind of racking up some expenses because they're charging their expenses to those films that they've added to the library that year. But it was a 15 year deal. So it's not over it's yet. Still, You're still yes. 
because he said that's kind of necessary for making the money. But and... to, but selling the rights, but that's it though, right? Like once you get that one amount of money from each each company in each country, they're not going to give you any more money for any sales that they do or any numbers they do. They're just they own the rights and they do it with it what they want, right? Yes, and there but there's right, but there the, the rights are broken down to at least three ways, right? So there's or maybe four because you can buy like the video or DVD rights the video on demand or uh, rights, the television rights or the theatrical rights. So we weren't selling theatrical rights or maybe we, you know, that was <laughs> nobody right. wanted to release it in theaters. Right. <laughs> um, so in theory, you could sell the movie three times in each territory and the world's carved up into, you know, 40 or so different uh, territories that are for selling movies. So of all those little thousands of dollars that you got for each rights, how much of that money did you ever see? Zero. <laughs> <laughs> well, how much total did the, they, they sell them for? Did you have like a, a bottom line that says, this is how much we made before our expenses? Yes. The one I'm looking at right now it says 22000 I thought it was 29000 But even if you had done it yourself, you still would have lost money. Yes. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> right. Okay, so then twenty two thousand is what they made, and then do they give you a sheet that says their expenses? Yes. And what what are their expenses? How do they how do they break it down? Toner, paper. Yeah, exactly. Staplers. Yeah, stamps. <laughs> so like producer delivery materials was is uh, three thousand dollars. So I think that's any kind of extra mastering they had to do, or like maybe paying for the poster that they had done. Distribution expenses is forty six hundred dollars. I'm not exactly sure what that is. Mm -hmm. uh, legal expense, 140. Oh, look, market expenses. That's the big one. So market expenses, because there's an entry uh, cost or whatever. You know what I mean? You pay for your table. And, right. and, and the first year, these are getting split up among whatever the six new films he's added to his library that year or whatever. So that's about $20,000 in oh, market expenses. Geez. Yeah, Wait, how much? Uh, nineteen thousand nine hundred and six dollars and eighty nine cents. Wow, is that for wow. one year or is that for like multiple years of doing that? So I should be it keeping a, a better eye on this, but uh, that's one that should just be one year, as far as I understand how it goes. The first year. So that's got to be his entry fee. That's got to be the table, and then it's also got to be lunches and dinners and. Travel, exp travel yeah. expenses, yeah, like for the whole company, and then like all the people they took out to lunch and dinner while they were there, all the meetings they had, <laughs> all that shit. I don't think, and again, I like Artist View Entertainment. You know, we sold to what seven or eight territories, and if they were able to sell till seven or eight more, which I'm sure they would have liked to have done, then I'd have started to see some money. Right. Yeah, I don't, you don't think, think those numbers would just get bigger if, if you'd made more Well, they're more capped money. at 40, so they would get a little bigger, right? But they're capped at 40, and then it's right. an 80-20 split. I don't think he's lost money on it either, where like, oh, he's made 22 and he spent, you know, 29. Like, yeah, his the cost of running his company and paying himself, you know what I mean? Like, I don't actually think right. this movie's... But that's that's just what you do. Like I'm I'm not. There's nothing right. unfair about that. But I don't think it's like oh my god, he's right. in the whole ten thousand from this. Like it's probably right. like maybe it's been a wash for him. But you know. Yeah, but you don't know how much money each territory has made off your movie. Like they bought the rights for three thousand dollars or four thousand or whatever, but they could have made profit on that that you don't never will never know about because uh, you're not involved in that. You just you know they just bought the rights from you for a sum 
and then they go off and do it. And it's up to them to see if they can make money on it or not. Right. But right. Then they don't owe any of that money to to Artist View Entertainment or me either. Right. Okay. So tw- yeah, and you know the Turks. They're they're shady motherfuckers. <laughs> they probably even released it in theaters and they sold a bunch of tickets. <laughs> yeah. You would never even know, man. You would right. even never even know. I was in Turkey. Some, just kidding. I love Turkish people. Yes. No, I agree. <laughs> some some kid in Turkey saw it, you know, and is like, that movie inspired me to become a filmmaker. And uh, you may never know. The only place I've seen, I have two friends that have gone to Taiwan and like taken photos of it in a video store. Like a pic, yeah, pictures of himself with it. So that was fun. Which uh, poster was in Thailand? Uh, The one. Day of Vengeance? Yeah, Day of Vengeance. Day, Day of Vengeance? Yeah. Or... The Day of Vengeance. But so you, no... you never actually talked about that. Why did they change the name? Oh, because you, you said that they thought it sounded like a horror film. Right. The blood loss. And they did a really nice poster. It's not the poster you'll see like on Amazon Prime because that's the one. Basically, the domestic guy that we finally ended up with didn't want to pay Artist View to use their poster. So he had somebody else do it, an even cheaper or not that or a cheap one. Their artist view one was very nice. So in the foreign territories, it's this very nice poster by the same guy who did the uh, Nicolas Cage uh, Ghost Rider poster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. And that's the one you guys can see behind my head right now. I don't realize yeah. That. yeah, that one looks awesome. That's bad podcasting, I guess, because nobody else can see it. Um, <laughs> right, right. Well, if you have if you have a digital still of it, we'll put it in the show. Okay. So oh yeah, see. absolutely. Okay, so the numbers you're giving to us now though are like the first year, right? And they have 15 years of this. So, are you still getting these sheets every year? Yeah, and they're really good. It's part of the reason I like them. They still send me re- even if they've made no new sales, and occasionally they add something. So the one I gave you was 20. The one I read was 22, and I was like, oh, I thought it was higher, and I just opened this other one, and it has Hong Kong for $1,250, and okay, so here I see it's up to 24. Mm. I think maybe this is the most recent one. So, But basically, that first year, there was kind of a, a bunch of them, and then there's like maybe a slow trickle where like every other year now, there's like one for $1,200 mm. getting added to this list, but now mm. it's a, you know, it's like back in the library and I don't know how these deals go where like somebody I think you know they're not like usually buying one movie they're like buying six of his movies you know and it's like uh, well maybe this one maybe this one alright well what if we throw in this one kind of a thing right <laughs> so uh, what happened with the domestic distribution let's go over that really quickly okay. so you gotta get to the yeah, Freddie sorry, I'm taking too long <laughs> I'm, I'm fascinated by this let's just <laughs> do the whole podcast on this okay go ahead. basically at the end of the year from Circus Road I had that spreadsheet i told you guys about which was now full of no's even if some of them had gotten passed (laughs) up the line right from like mid-tier companies which is what we were going to go after like we kind of made a plan with them which was like if we get a lot of yeses from mid-tier companies then we'll send it to this batch of higher tier companies you know but we didn't get any yeses um so and most of the time or like what what got back to me uh, was like they need a name in this, right? A name right. star, a name actor, right? Like right. somebody that yeah, they could put on the poster and say starring Matthew McConaughey, right? right. Gotcha. Okay. Um, yeah, or Val Kilmer or Danny Trejo or whoever is the direct-to-video kind of Dolph a- affordable. Yeah, Dolph, that would have been good. Uh, but then yeah. again, <laughs> El Mariachi had no stars in it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Which is why none of it matters if your movie's really good. So. <laughs> That's right. I really think that. 
I mean, I don't right. feel like, yeah. oh, I got gypped and I made this masterpiece that nobody knows about. I feel like the movies that that make <laughs> it beyond, they, they got there on merit. They're really good and right, mine right. has lots of shortcomings. <laughs> right. So, but anyway, back to the domestic. So then he said, here's a list of kind of the bottom tier companies. And the problem with these companies is they suck and you'll never see a penny from them, basically. So you can t- <laughs> you can take it to them, but uh, they're gonna, they're going to rip you off on, almost definitely is what he, he was right. saying. Well, at least it's not worth his time to negotiate the deal and to get ten percent because it's going to be ten percent of nothing. Right, right, right. Yeah. So then I kind of sat on it for briefly, like should I try and do a self distribution thing and just you know and own all the rights? And I was like, no, nah, I just want I'll get if these places can get it on Netflix or something like that, that'd be great. So I sent it to a handful of those, and those I got more bites because they're shitty companies that just want to steal your movie. <laughs> and ended up going with this company out of New Jersey, uh, Life Size Entertainment. And um, he wasn't even able to get it on Netflix, which was too bad because that was kind of the whole um, negotiation in my own head or with my right. collaborators was like, it's worth seeing no money because they could probably get this on Netflix and and that would just be good for right. all of us and we can't. And he got it on How many years ago is this? So this was a, a now we're like this is 2010, 6 years ago. So and that was only a 7-year deal. So that's over like June of this coming in 2017. Mm-hmm. We'll see if I decide to do anything once I have the domestic rights again. Right. He got it on Blockbuster online. That was the joke I wanted to tell. <laughs> So, (laughs) uh, speaking of Blockbuster, yay, Blockbuster came back in to save the day. Uh, That was like kind of fun because I like would rent it and then just have it. I'm like, oh, maybe if I just keep renting it from Blockbuster, they'll have to buy more copies of it from him. (laughs) Uh, uh, That was nice. They mailed it to me. That was just nice to get your movie in the mail from Blockbuster. Uh, And then they folded and. And then it was, you know, wherever he, you know, not that many great places. But it was on Amazon. So you could buy it on Amazon. That was kind of fun. Right. You know? Right. And leave Amazon reviews and stuff like that. And now when, when Amazon Prime started, now it's on Prime, which is fun, you know, because like right. that's a natural thing to happen. And I was just looking over my financial before this call started. I kind of pulled these things up that might be relevant. And I was like, dear God, the last financial report he sent me. Unless I, I should maybe should look again was two thousand was the end of two thousand and eleven and I bugged oh him for one since then like numerous times and I think I had to bug him a lot for that yeah. like so like he's not really an honest businessman and I've seen no money from this him is life size yeah this is life size entertainment I've seen no money from him I think he's even sold the movie to some German company which he doesn't have the even the rights to do. Uh, but I was like, I don't know. What's the point of like, I could report that to artist view and then everybody gets mad at everybody. And I just, that was just like, I found it online in a search once that, and it was like streaming from some German company. And I was like, cause that, and I didn't see that on my artist view spreadsheet and they're supposed to be selling the foreign rights. So I emailed them and asked them where they bought it. And that was from Bruce Fajeri at Life Size Entertainment. Oh, geez. That's terrible. So uh, he totally just screwed you, basically. Yeah. And I don't think he's rolling in money from this either. You know, like <laughs> right. maybe he's made $15,000 off the whole thing, probably less than that. You know, yeah, I just made right. that number up. His expenses are technically capped, I think, at something very low, 6 or 12. 
before. So like his, what I have gotten from him is like, oh no, we're still in the, in the red or whatever. But then right. I never hear from him anymore. Um, right. Even when I bug him, he'll like, you know. Anyway, that's the story of Day of Vengeance distribution. Well, the one, it. the one thing I want to ask about this, or you know, that I know the whole SAG thing, like what happened with SAG? Because didn't they like sue you or try to sue you or something? Can you tell that story? Yeah. When was this? Now a year, year and a half ago. I got a letter in the mail from SAG that it wasn't a lawsuit. I think maybe they're to call like a mediation or whatever. But basically, they wanted to see all the financial receipts and they wanted me to to pay royalties that were doing. I didn't really understand what that was about. But I guess because I had signed, like, I don't really, like, I was like 19 just signing stuff. I didn't understand. Whatever. I just want to make a movie. What, you have to sign here to use actors? Fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So with the ultra low budget agreement that I had signed there, you, you I was paying them $100 a day and only used three SAG actors because that was, and even that was like, oh God, how are we going to afford this? <laughs> right. And the rest, I just had to use um, people who were willing to to do it for free either some actors some not actors at all who i was just talking to being in the movie they're working for under scale but then you have to pay them royalties once you distribute the movie uh and i had assumed that that was out of my share so whenever i would see a check whatever whenever that comes someday uh (laughs) then i'll determine or i will do whatever to if that goes to sag that goes to sag and they can pay it but I kind of thought I was safe because that obviously must come out of my end as the production company who owns the movie. But what SAG was claiming is that's not the case. Any money the movie makes, that needs to come out first, which means that in the deals I signed with these guys, I would have had to put in language that says, and you don't even get the the first money that comes in, whatever percentage of that you have to give to SAG. So I don't even know if I would have gotten any deals or how movies that use the ultra low budget that aren't like, you know, big movies that they know are going to be money makers actually get deals. So I, anyway, I sent the, I kind of I sent them my financial statements from these guys and I had to like pester the guy in New Jersey to send me one. I think he just sent me the same old one from like years before. <laughs> and I got a lawyer friend to kind of reply with some more legalese. And then I never heard back from them, which I think just means like they didn't want to resolve the issue. It's just like, okay, there's no money for us to squeeze here. So we'll just put it on the bottom of the pile <laughs> right. and check in again in five right, years. Exactly. Right. I'm sure they just go through every agreement that they ever sign, at the, ever get signed, and they just check in with filmmakers. Because I heard a similar story with a friend of mine that that works at my company that did a really low-budget film. And yeah, SAG called him as well. Wow. Huh. Yeah. I mean, Crazy. they should be doing with that. The, uh, right? the Director's Guild. Right. This is why you have a union to yeah. track down money that is owed. So it's fair. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. So that's your first distribution experience. Pretty crazy. Yeah. So 10 years, it took you, this is where like 10 years after, almost 10 years, right? It's been like eight years, something like well, that since you shot your film. It's been 10 years since we shot and it's been now six years basically, or six and a half since we finished the distribution process of it. Right. Wow. And sign that. And deal what did you, size. what have you been doing for the past five years? Like, did you, did this discourage you? And you were just like, I'm never doing another film again. Um, or have you been like, are you still in the film business? Like, what are you doing now? Yeah. So here I'll try and do it faster. Sorry. I've been going slow. 
Um, no, that's okay. Uh, <laughs> we love it. So uh, after that, or even while that was going on, I was working as a substitute teacher uh, after college and was like, this is fine. I'll do this and try and get another screenplay going. Collaborated with different people on that and thought I would just work not in the film business until I was ready to make another project. And over the course of a few years, mm-hmm. wrote a lot of like little short treatments with different, various people. Ark and I worked on a script together and never got anything anywhere where I felt like this is now really good. This is one I believe in. I kind of knew too much now after, like I was not I was not like my totally naive 19 year old self. So there's just way more doubt. I'm like, right. no, this isn't going to work. This isn't going to work. And it needs to, I don't want to just lose <laughs> right. everything again. Right. So never got that going. And meanwhile, Ulrich was working, like actually doing stuff in video and film and on movies. And so basically every kind of connection he made, like I'm working on a Francis Ford Coppola movie. Do you want to uh, come be a PA on that? <laughs> I was like, oh, all right, cool. That sounds good. That sounds maybe more relevant than substitute teaching. Or like, <laughs> I got an internship at Studio B. They need an assistant editor tomorrow. Do you want to come in? I'm like, oh, I don't know how to do anything. And I was like, just come do it. So, all right, fine. So, uh, <laughs> basically, because of all, Rick, I have a career now just doing freelance video work, shooting and editing and, and things like that. So, mm-hmm. then I kind of talk about like two lanes in my career is like corporate video stuff that pays the bills and then there's like the other lane which is like films i actually i i want to make or films that are from my head more or less you know uh uh, things i want to do and then the goal is that that becomes one lane at some point and the things i want to do can also uh, pay the bills. You're also skipping over, like, you got paid to direct a documentary for somebody, you know, and so you did that whole process, and that was, like, an, another movie thing, so that's pretty cool. Or got pretty me a cool. job making a little video for this uh, venture capitalist, and then it turned into making him a whole commission feature-length documentary that I spent oh, wow. over a year on, and then has not, he just, he did not distribute it. Nothing happened with it. He did, well, he wasn't unhappy with it. Uh, no, he loved it's it. It's like a, a hundred minute movie that he has, and I have a copy of, and exists nowhere in the world for anyone else to see. <laughs> yeah. And then that kind of got me going, like I should make another documentary because I just made a documentary, and that is a lot more manageable than making a, a fictional film. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right, you show up with a camera and you right. just capture stuff. You don't have to like bring in lights and. Unless you're doing, I guess, sit-down interviews. But yeah, right. it's, a lot, it's a lot easier. So then I was like, well, who do I actually want to make a documentary about if it's not like somebody commissioning me to make something they want a documentary about? Pretty quickly, I had already had in my head that I wanted to make a documentary about this uh, singer-songwriter I really like, Fred Eaglesmith. I had seen him live a few times and both times thought, like, this would be so great if I could shoot something with him. I wrote him a letter, sent it to the next place he was going to be playing, saying, like, I'd like to do some, I've done some stuff. I'd like to do a, a music documentary uh, with you. And then I was like, oh, hopefully I'll hear back. Well, maybe not. I will see. And like the next day after he played the place I sent it to that night, I heard back from a publicist of his. I was like, oh, Fred got your note. He wants to know what you have in mind. Through that, made plans to like shoot with him the next time he was in California. So then I did the California leg of his tour with him, like five or six stops across California and uh, just shot and was like, we'll see what we get out of this. Maybe we'll get 10 minutes or maybe we'll get 
something and like had like one night where I brought in Ulrich and some other people for free to do like a multi-camera thing at one of his shows and then cut it together. I was like, oh, this is over an hour. This is something maybe now we could sell. Then we decided to do that. Where, where, where's the, <laughs> I'm losing the train of, of what, yeah, what yeah. I should be focusing on. Yeah. Well, I'm curious to know um, who funded this shoot. He and I basically made the de- a handshake deal that we would split expenses and split revenue. Okay. So 50-50. So, but you guys didn't know what you're going to come out with. You just said, I just want to shoot you because you're an interesting person, interesting band. I want to capture it. And then on once you're finished, you said, all right, well, we have 100 minutes, you said? Uh, no, well, no, it was oh, just over an hour. It's an hour and six okay. minutes. So 66 minutes of footage that's edited together in something that's compelling and watchable. And so then did you guys sit down and say, well, what do we want to do with it now? Yeah, kind of. Well, he, from early on, he was like, no, this is like this is a good idea. Like, here's the thing: you're a filmmaker, you can make stuff, but you need distribution. Like, he got that already. He's basically mm-hmm. like, I am the distribution. I have a website and a merch table where stuff sells. Yeah. But I didn't know if we'd get enough to have something sellable off just this one. Ca- you know what I mean? I th- okay, maybe I have to wait around till next year when he comes back and shoot more. It was, I guess, hard for us to know, okay, is this something just for Fred fans or is this maybe have some appeal to a wider audience? So then we delayed selling it at his merch table and stuff and sent it to like six festivals and like five good ones and one not so good one. But I kind of tried to pick ones that were <laughs> kind of focused on or like had some interest in music related films or music documentaries. Right. So it didn't get into any of the good ones, which was kind of disappointing for me because I thought with someone like him attached, like he's, you know, a real guy who has a real following. He's, you know, played his music on Letterman and stuff like that, that that would make, have me, you know, my best shot of getting into the Nashville Film Festival or South by Southwest. But anyway, it didn't. It got into a music documentary festival in Oklahoma, which is kind of fun that it played at like the Oklahoma Music Hall of Fame in Muskogee. But I don't know if anybody was at the screening or what, you know. Right. You know, that's a conversation you guys have, too, which is really interesting. Like, is there a point in like stacking up small festivals? I've kind of right. for me, I feel like there's not <laughs> like I, I want to either get into one that right. will make like a, a substantive difference in the life of this movie or kind of skip it. Right, right, right. Since right. we're talking about festivals, I know this is a little off topic, but did you try to submit Day of Vengeance to film festivals when you were done with? Yes. It? Yeah, we skipped that part. Uh, I did. I think we did, didn't we? Yeah, we did. did skip we talk it. about No, it we skipped it. We skipped okay. it. I sent it. Okay to like really good ones and uh, a, a kind of a range of them, but not a, not a ton, but kind of a, a small sampling and got into the Staten Island Film Festival and won Best Action Film there, which was nice. And that was the only festival yeah, awesome. it was in. And But, you know, again, it's like, that was nice. It's nice. I still have the trophy, I think. Where is it? And, uh, yeah. And, and didn't, didn't uh, <laughs> someone really cool present the award or something to it? What, what no, was that? No. Uh, yeah, I thought you said the Rizzo was there, right? <laughs> yeah, he was, but he presented to the movie that won something else right before me, and I was like, "Damn, uh, <laughs> so close, so close!" The Rizzo is like okay, one so of my I'm, heroes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that was, what was that like the year that Ghost Dog came out or something? Uh, hmm, I'm not sure. Well, he's from Staten yeah, Island, right? He there. Oh, okay. So yeah, yeah, they just got him to come, and that's fine. Yeah. So okay, so 
just to wrap that that little storyline up, you did submit to festivals. You made it into one. Um, you didn't get your distribution from that, so that's why you started reaching out to distributors directly. Yes, for Day of Vengeance. And, but but it was yeah. kind of all simultaneous, I think, too. Oh, okay. like you're doing it like wow. Yeah, so I remember even talking at like Circus Road, and they're like, "Yeah, let, if you get into the one of those places, that will help." Because I had already submitted. You can let us know, and then you're like, oh, "Okay." Yeah. Hey, we got into Staten Island, and they're like, yeah, that doesn't help. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, yeah, just to touch on that really quickly, I did hear that if you do hook up with a distributor before you make it into festivals, it's good because then they can help kind of like get at the festivals, help try to find distribution while it's there, or even just like, you know, navigate the the whole laurels and things like that. It's like, all right, great. Like now we can add a, a laurel to your poster and and talk to people and say this is played at all these festivals and that's why it's more valuable and so i think they like to come on early rather than later. right and how yeah. many festivals did you submit to you think like 10 you said like a handful or how many we're back on day of vengeance now yeah back on day of vengeance. <laughs> uh, yeah. i just Sorry. no, i just I, the answer is probably pretty similar for both it's probably like it was six for the fred movie and it, it might be about that for uh day of vengeance maybe it was a little more maybe it was Maybe it was. Maybe it was more like twelve. I think you got to do like twenty or thirty or forty. But why? I, really feel like I mean, because <laughs> that's a, how you get into film festivals. Yeah, but is that what's the point? Like to get into well, a bunch of know. Staten Island level festivals that just kind of feel like a nice pat on the back. And you did. grow, you, like, you grow your fan base. Like that's how people hear about your movie, and that's how people hear about you as a filmmaker, and I, that's how people know to go buy it when it's out in the world and on Amazon and on whatever. Yeah, I, I swear, if you'd played twenty small film festivals when a Day of Vengeance had gotten onto Amazon, you'd probably have at least like five to ten more reviews on there. And since they might have met you, and since you would have gone they probably would have been good reviews because your influence on them would help them get, you know feel better about the movie you know yeah. what i mean that it's interesting because i feel like for for me that wouldn't have been true but for you maybe it would because you're more gregarious and you would go and you would shake people's hands and be their friend. You wouldn't shake people's hands. You shake hands. Well, you know, you're a nice guy. Uh, you know what I mean? So I think right. that might have worked for you. But I kind of tend to disagree. You guys were talking about this an episode or two ago and Ark was saying he thinks Strange Thing got lots more views than Brother because of the festival run. And I was listening, kind of disagreeing with that. And I just, like, maybe, yeah. but I, <laughs> I feel the same way. Maybe it's hard to say. Like, it, I feel like all works grasping at straws a little yeah, bit, trying to explain. Exactly. Well, I think well, it's hard we'll just to I mean, not know why. Like, that's like right. the, the story you can tell yourself that might be true when it's like, <laughs> I wanted my second film to get more views than my first. How come that's not true? And then you you can build that narrative, but I could say, you know, it might just be right. more people responded to Strange Thing and liked it right. more and clicked share uh, when they right. watched it from, you know, the one big blog that shared it, which maybe right. feels less comfortable. Right, yeah. Or it's uh, I told them it, maybe it's the Star Trek audience mm -hmm. it tends to share things more and there's no Star Trek connection in Brother. Right. Um, yeah, maybe like, Capone's fans didn't like it because it's not a comedy. Yeah, that's 
And so they they didn't want to share it. Right. So let's uh, let's talk about the. the you don't want us to talk again. about why your short films respond to people. Let's talk about your failure. Let's get off of all Rick's failure and talk about your failure. It's not I like a failure. the way you deflect. There's, no, there's no failure. Right. <laughs> no, we're not failing at all. There's no failure. Oh yeah, let's talk about your success. So right. we are talking about the Fred Fred Eaglesmith documentary. Right. So you guys finished it trying to decide what you're going to do with it and you decided let's sell it directly to fans right first let's wait and see maybe maybe it'll get into like a nashville or a big kind of music documentary festival and change our plans but that didn't happen so it's like all right let's go back to to our first plan and we will uh you know do the distribution ourselves yeah well what do you do where is it selling and how is it doing it's for sale at fredeaglesmith.com in his store and it's for sale at his merch table at his shows, and he plays all the time, and that's part of the reason he was an interesting guy to make a documentary about in the first place. And his merch table is a big part, I think, of the engine of why he, he can be on the road all the time. You know what I mean? He puts effort into that. Yeah. He knows he's going to have, you know, he knows he's got to make money at the door and make money at the merch table in order to keep going and get to the next place. Well, how many shows does he do a month, let's say? Uh, I don't know the, exactly the answer, but he does, these days he does more like six-week tours with a small break in between. It seems like maybe a couple weeks off and then six weeks back on. And when he's on the road, it could be anywhere from like, you know, probably in the range of three a week. Maybe but doesn't could, he could like do more. like over 200 shows a year or something? Like something insane like that? Well, like, isn't he he's on the road touring? like over 200 days a year. But yeah, but I don't think insane. it's two hundred shows. But I don't yeah. want to say anything that's like just, not the true numbers. Right. Yeah, right. But the but the point is, he, he plays like hundreds of shows a year. Like he is constantly playing shows. He plays so as like, much as anybody who more yeah. more than more than more most than most is probably for sure. what you oh, would way more yeah, than most. He probably, yes. So let's yeah, say he plays two hundred shows a year, and at each one of those shows, he sells five movies. Right. So that's. 1,000 copies right. and each copy is how much are you selling each copy for? 25. 25 bucks. That's $25,000 just based on right. simple math. Right. And I, Is that what you guys are seeing? Uh, it's not going to be that many in a year because I don't think it's 200 shows even if he's on the road. So what we've decided to do is not do any dis digital distribution yet because we were looking at Kino Nation or talking to the, right. the company that kind of does stuff for his albums. But probably at least for the first year, we want people to buy that the physical copy because that's better for us. And especially after listening to yes. your podcast with Lucas Kitchen, where he got on Hulu and makes eight cents of you, that it's like <laughs> the difference between $25 yeah. and eight cents is a lot and if a lot of these fans <laughs> who are buying it would be like oh i'll just watch it on hulu that's like uh yes exactly because it's free quote unquote free for them right um but for you guys you don't make much but the other thing you haven't heard is we just did an episode with the guy who did a documentary about sriracha and he stumbled upon this idea of windowing so you window your release so that way you try to get as much money um, on the first window and then you trickle down until you get to that last window where it's like eight cents on Hulu but you don't want you don't want it on Hulu at the same time that you're selling it direct because you make so much more money selling it direct right, so right. I think you're smart in doing that so think about it as windows for maybe the first year you guys sell it direct and then maybe in a year from now you guys can put it on the next 
logical platform. Like on iTunes, probably ending with Netflix is probably the one you want to end on last because they have the least amount of money. Huh. Interesting. But they're all right. That would be a, a difficult one to get biggest. to, even still, right? And they're the one that looks because this is that's kind of what I was thinking about when I was listening to the Lucas Kitchen podcast. Is like, so if you go to my website now and it's like, oh, you can buy this movie from FreddieEagleSmith.com. Like I was like, that doesn't look necessarily unless you know who he is, unless you're a fan already. Like very impressive. If it, if they click here to watch on Hulu, it'd be like, oh, this guy's legit. You know, right? Yeah. <laughs> but that Amazon would be a, Prime, that would legit. Be a, right, that would be a much worse deal for me. The, the The trickle of money coming in would be exponentially lower. Right. And so it doesn't make sense. So I know you don't want to talk about your actual numbers, but just in a very brief way, like let's let's talk yeah. about like how much you made the movie for, like, you know, in a vague sense sure. and sort of how much you've gotten back so far in like two months of, of DVD sales. So we, we started in October and he was on the road October or November and he hasn't been on the road much in December, but I think just with a couple Facebook posts and suggesting maybe people want to get it for Christmas presents or whatever for Fred heads they know. We've made, in the first two months, almost a third of our budget back. So we're basically wow. on track for six months... So like four months from now, you know, by like this spring, hopefully, hopefully if things continue at this pace, we will be, uh, re- we will have reimbursed ourselves. And then after wow. that, it'll be a nice little trickle of profit. And, pure profit, baby. Yeah, pure, yeah, which would be great. Which would be like the first profitable film I've ever made. It's of course all because of Fred. Um, and that he, you know what I mean? But, and it's not going to be like, now I don't have to work for the next 18 months and I can just focus on the next project. It's just going to be a little bit of money trickling in. But if I, right. if I was able to stack projects like these, you know what I mean? And you have this yep. built up where in two and a half years, there's still a little trickle coming in, but there's three other projects where there's a little mm-hmm. trickle coming, right. you know what I mean? Uh-huh. So I don't know. I'm still kind of figuring out yeah. how you do more of this stuff and less uh, corporate video shoots. It's well, funny you- that you said that. That's exactly what our last guest said, too. It's like, it's not sustainable if you're just doing it one film at a time, but if you can stack them, then you could potentially find a way to like make it sustainable. Right. Yeah, because I mean, honestly, like you spent like a week with him shooting, so it was a very short amount of time shooting, and then the rest was in post and and like editing, and like you were kind of doing that in between freelance jobs and whatnot. So I think it's different than Griffin's story because he basically stopped working and he only worked on the Sriracha documentary for that period. Like he wasn't really doing anything else, but you could conceivably squeeze these in between your other jobs and you could like if you had the the subjects you could probably do like three of these in a year if you wanted to and then you know release them as they got done and then you know two years from now you could have four or five of these documentaries uh out in the world making money on merch tables and then like that, that could conceivably be your income um, in five years from now, maybe. Right. You know. It's conceived. That's a very. Yeah, but do you want to be the, the band documentarian and that's all you do? Like You want to right. make movies, right? You want to like well, do, do narrative stuff. Hold on. Let me respond to those things one at a time. <laughs> <laughs> Ulrich gives, of course, always the very optimistic, rosy version uh, <laughs> uh, of, of how it could possibly go. So I think, like, while that is conceivable, it's not really realistic to think that, right, that I'm going to, even that I could do three of these in a year. Because that, you know, 
it was, you know, it was a lot of time spent, even if it wasn't that much on the road with him, you know, and there's planning and there's then handling the whole distribution end of it too. And Ark worked on it with me and, you know, helped me make the the master copy that we sent out and all this stuff. So like I got Ark on it for free with for one day of shooting and then a little bit of post help. But then if this is like a more sustainable thing, like at some point you can't do that forever. That was like, cause we're experimenting and seeing if this works. But if I was just doing this all the time and then making my income off it, then it wouldn't be fair not to pay you right. for your time anyway. Right. So there's all kinds of complications like that. And then there's a the question of I, with this, we'll get into what you're talking about. Timothy was like, what do you want to do? And I would be happy making music documentaries, but only about the guys I want to make music documentaries about. Otherwise, it's just like making corporate videos. I can't just write a <laughs> yeah. form letter and send it out to 200 guys, also because I don't care about those guys. So mm -hmm. uh, I have written a couple other letters uh, since the Fred uh, movie and haven't gotten bites, but it's like I have to be moved and compelled and inspired because this is somebody I like and somebody whose body of work I already know and somebody I feel like, no, I'm I'm the best person to make a documentary about them or whatever, maybe not the best, but I am a qualified person who would be, you know, not just like they're doing me a favor by letting me, but I'm actually offering them something right. real. You're not a monkey. You're not a camera monkey. You are there to tell a story about a subject that you care right. about. Right. And yes. And have some, you know what I mean? It's not like, oh, who are you? Yeah, I'll figure out your story. It's like, oh, who, like I've been listening to your music for right. 10 years. And, you know. Well, the letters you wrote since then have been all to people who are like, basically you're jumping from like a Fred Eagle Smith type person to like, I don't know, like a really famous artist, basically, in the world of, of country folk, you know, rock and roll kind of thing. Like you're going from uh, zero to 60 in, in a lot of ways, well, I kind of think. I don't think that's, I don't know. agree with that necessarily either. I think I've I've yeah. written only three letters, and yeah, two of them are more famous than Fred, but none of them are Bruce Springsteen, and one of them I think right. is pretty much on the level of Fred, and he was like one where I, I didn't hear anything back, and some of the and one of the higher ones I did hear back twice from you know someone on his management team, um, right. so you don't know it's hard to figure out who you're you know yeah, but I mean I it's 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 the, the way I feel about that is the same, and I know that it's hard to like you can't just send yeah two hundred letters out to guys who you don't care about, but I mean you do love a lot of music and you do love a lot of artists, and I feel like if you were doing this on a higher rate, you'd probably already have your next subject if you instead of writing three letters, you had written ten letters you know to people you care about, you know. But, you know, you can only do it at the rate that you want to do it at. You can't you can't force it more than right. that, right? Right, it's hard. That I feel like, too, uh, there's a level at which it's kind of like phony and it's just like spray and pray. And there's a level which, like, I put a lot of time into thinking what this letter and why should I be making a documentary for this person? But for me, it's kind of hard because, like, if, if I was in your shoes, you know I would be doing it a little bit differently. Right. But, but I mean, whether or not the, you would consider that genuine or not, I mean, you know, obviously you have your, your own opinions of the way I do my business. But, uh, you know, <laughs> to each his own, I suppose. That kind of difference guys, I th think that Ark and I always have is, like, is mostly his optimism right so he would say i'm maybe i don't want to put words in his mouth like i'm too pessimistic or whatever but like to me it's like a realist approach but i think you can only be yourself so what is true for my methods is is, is true of me 
and then it's different for Ulrich. And like it, it'll work when he goes to twenty film festivals and meets lots of people and makes friends and knows people. And then I <laughs> right. just have to say, right. uh, or do you know anyone who fill in the blank? And then it works for me because he knows them. <laughs> right, right. He's a natural producer. Right, this guy. <laughs> Um, All right, I, there's a few things I want to do. Do you have time, Isaac, to hang out with us for yeah, a few, got, little bit longer? I got plenty of time to sit here. Auric, do you have time? Oh yeah, sure. I'm just hanging out, man. You can't, you can't squeeze this show into an hour, man. <laughs> I this, guess there's, not. there's too much to talk about. There's too much. To so talk. okay, <laughs> the first thing I want to do is just like we talked about selling a documentary uh, about a band on their merch table. And I'm sure there's a lot of people listening being like, yeah, that's great. Awesome that you found a band that has a following and a built-in audience. But what about me? And I think that we should just like take this idea in theory and like, let's pull it out of the documentary world, put it into the narrative feature world. And how could you do something similar to this in that space? And to me, it would be like, well, what if you found a YouTube celebrity that has a bunch of followers and put them in a feature film that you made and then tap into that audience and sell directly to them. Maybe that's like one way to do it. Well, people are already doing that, aren't they? You know, isn't that already happening? Yeah, I think they are. Yeah. Well, how else? I mean, the, the, the traditional model is you put a name actor in your movie and it, it basically does that same thing. But I think that's relying on very traditional models that we don't necessarily have access to as independent filmmakers. So is there another way that we could do that in the narrative space and be able to make this kind of money? Well, I think you'd literally go to film festivals with a movie you've made and just try to sell it to people directly rather than like <laughs> trying to find a distributor. You have like a, a, a table outside of the screening and be like, hey, come yeah. and buy a copy of go to, The go Alternate. To, yeah, go to Sundance and um, <laughs> not, not be looking for a distributor, just be trying to sell it to people. Be like, hey, I got my, my movie here, Blu-ray, special features, $10 a pop, you know, and do it that way. And, and, and watch all the people turn their nose up at you like you're like some piece of shit. <laughs> or or you do it at more like you know you probably do it at comic cons or or film festivals or conventions that are like a little bit more like less hoity-toity than sundance you know right comic con's an interesting idea yeah, yeah. like but you would still have to build up your fan base like the thing about fred eagle that's interesting is he already has a, a fan base he's right. already playing shows he's already making money off of those tickets so really the film just becomes like profit on top of all that stuff whereas a film festival you know you're paying for the entry fees you're flying out there you have so many expenses to cover before you even sell one copy of your movie and i would argue that probably the comic con route is the same thing you have to like get yourself there rent a booth and a table and and sell movies so I'm not sure. I think it'd have to be like a digital platform, right? I th- yeah. Demand. I think I really like this question and I li- and I like this is like you were pushing Auric about this a few episodes back when you were saying uh his plan of just make a really good movie that someone wants to buy from me and then they also want to fund another movie. And I was thinking like, oh yeah, that was kind of my plan. And <laughs> it's totally your plan. And, and yeah. it didn't work at all. Uh so uh and you were pushing him so like what's in what's an alternative uh method arc's like well he can't help it that that's just the way it is like you know what i mean right. like there is an infrastructure in place where there are distributors who have 
budgets to for advertising. You know what I mean? And they're the kind of the gatekeepers on whether the public's going to get your movie. Is there an right. end route uh, or an end around to take? I don't know. Like, yeah, if if it's not something that has a built in audience, right? Fred Eagle Smith or Sriracha. Right. Those are pretty, pretty, pretty easy, right? Well, I mean, yeah, especially uh-huh. Sriracha. Like, everyone loves Sriracha. Uh, yeah. yeah. Hey, everyone loves Fred, too. Um, right. <laughs> uh, that, that what is it? And I don't know. And I don't think you can really work backwards. Like, you have to just want to make a movie about Sriracha and... It happens that <laughs> right. millions of people will right. click on that to watch it online because they're obsessed with it. Yeah, I can't. I can't go and find a YouTube celebrity that I'd never been to their channel before and be like, okay, I want to put, yeah, whatever that PewDiePie or whatever that guy's name is, and put him into a movie, and then <laughs> right. suddenly like pure business. Yeah, I'm gonna like now have the PewDiePie movie or the mo- the movie starring PewDiePie right. or whatever his name is, and then now he's you know all his fans will buy it and then i'll i'll have a movie done like that's just not right and i think you did something in the middle you know somewhere on that spectrum with capone because you took someone who you liked and who you thought well their following will help me too it's like a win-win right but you weren't trying to sell your soul to make some capone uh vehicle it was like i'm gonna put capone into the kind of movies i want to make and but his audience doesn't care about the kind of movies you want to make. There are people <laughs> right. do, but they're not like his Twitter followers. They want to see Capone in a movie that's like Capone's stand-up comedy, not in like a dark horror sci-fi <laughs> right. thing. Right, <laughs> right. Which is which is interesting <laughs> right. because like I I I like just saw like I had this movie already written, right? Like I already had it written, and I was like kind of trying to find the person to put in it. And uh, I just saw him online and I saw something in him that was perfect for the character. And I was like, oh my gosh, like this guy's great, you know, and then he happened to be here and all that, whatever. But yeah, I never tried to cater to his fans in any way. I just thought that he would be great for what I was trying to do. And then I thought, yeah, like he has a lot of Twitter followers and he's got a fan base and he's kind of well known, like he'll help the movie, you know, like that's kind of what I thought. Like it'll be, yeah, exactly what you said. But then it didn't work out that way, you know? Right. The movie I thought was great. Like I thought he was perfect for the movie i thought he did a great job i'm really happy with the performance and and i think bringing the movie to life with him was amazing but yeah his, the, the the his side of it the fan base side of it didn't really do anything you know so i guess that's what's what is that lesson i don't know you just you have to cater to their fans more is that no, what the lesson is i think is? the lesson or, is not you make the movies you want to make and you hope they find an audience right yeah. or maybe you find people that their brand fits with your brand and then it's just like this great synergy but i think Probably what we stumbled upon in this episode is that you you did you didn't really fit Capone's brand. You made Capone fit into your brand, but you didn't really fit his brand. And so I think his fans didn't embrace the film like you really wanted them to. Mm-hmm. Maybe had you made a movie like Ride Along, independent film version of Ride Along, maybe <laughs> right. it would be a, you would have had. A, millions of views by now yeah i don't know who knows right but you can't who knows i I think as an artist you can't you can't do that right (laughs) like you can't try to change your art to be something that it's not in order to to get the views or get the hits like you have to just do what you want to do and then hope that you're setting yourself up for success like like i don't know i mean here's an interesting question for you guys like do you think that it was a mistake for me to put Capone in? Like, if I could go back in time, do you think I should have just focused on finding an actor, like a more famous actor, like somebody who's like known as an actor? Or do you think it was, you know, 
like, what do you think? Or do you think I just did it fine and it just didn't work out? Like, what, what do you guys think? I don't even think it necessarily didn't work out. Like, why? Because it didn't get 100,000 more views than it did? I don't think you can just rely on how that is. I mean, like, it worked out. What's the metrics right. of success? Right. Like, a short film's not going to make money anyway. Right. Really. Right. Not m- money, For but me, I mean... thing that makes filmmaking interesting is making a gamble. And sometimes gambles pay off and sometimes they don't. I think the most boring movies in the world are the ones that don't take any risks, that just do what everyone else is doing and they don't they don't allow for failure. Um, I recently saw La La Land and if you watch that movie, like there's so many times that I'm watching that movie thinking, oh my God, this could be the biggest failure ever. Like this could have completely not worked. And I think Damien Chazelle even like admits that he didn't know if it was going to work or not. And it's like, but he took the risk and he did it and it's paying off and people are really liking it. But I think like if you're not willing to take the risk, then you're just not really, to, we're not willing to push the boundaries of things. So I applaud you for trying it. I wouldn't say it's a failure. I think it was a calculated risk that just didn't work out the way you thought it would. And now you can learn from it and you can do better on the next film. And, and you use those learnings to make the alternate more successful. You're only kind of counting it as a failure because Strange Thing got more. If Strange Thing got 600 views, then you'd be like, oh, great, it really worked out, brother. They, you know what yeah. I mean? With the same right. amount of views right. that brother had, you'd be like, yeah, it's more successful right. and got more views. Yeah, that's true. I don't know. I mean, what is the metric for success? Yeah, it's tough to say. I mean, I'm personally happy with the movie. Like, I think the storytelling and the everything about it, I thought worked out really well. You know, like, obviously, it's not perfect, but I talked about on the podcast being really happy with the final, um, the final outcome of that movie. So... I don't know. I mean, I guess if you just talk about it, your own as an artist being happy with the work, then I guess you, all I can say is it's a big success because I think it's a lot you know, stronger to me than Strange Thing was. But again, yeah, Strange Thing just continues to outperform it like crazy. But I don't know. Is that is that because of Star Trek? Is that because of the film festivals? Is that because Stranger <laughs> Things is out there and they're getting confused? <laughs> right. And that is your title. Isn't title. it okay if people like Strange Thing better? Like, that's something I've definitely felt like I have to tiptoe around with you, but here we are. Like, <laughs> right. I like Strange Thing more. <laughs> like, right. that, that doesn't mean, like, you took some step back as a filmmaker. Right. It just means I like Strange Thing more. Right, right. Some, yeah, something yeah. That, like, films are like capturing lightning in a bottle, right? And you don't know exactly sometimes why they work. And I've heard uh, the, the guys who do the movie crypt Every once in a while, they'll talk about this where um, like the guy who did Knights of Bad Astem is like so embarrassed by that movie. But he says that sometimes people come up to him and say, hey, man, I really like that movie. And he wants to tell them that they're wrong, that it's not good. But then at the same time, he goes, well, I can't discount their experience. So it's like you just have to say thank you. And like you don't know why that movie resonated with people. It just did. Right. may, May not live up to your idea of like what it should have been or um, you think that brother is a better film, but I I'm with you, Isaac. I I like Strange Thing better, and I can't tell you why. <laughs> I, I, I don't. I couldn't say why. I just like it better as a film. I just enjoyed no. it better. But there are like <laughs> I know you talked. You know you've talked. There are people who like Brother better, but that's just yeah, that's the people, nice yeah. part of having a a body of work. It's different people can yeah. like different ones of them. 
Yeah, I think I've been okay with that. It's a pretty fun. I don't know if I told this on the podcast or not, but when I first finished it um, and showed it to my family, everyone said my mom, my dad, my brother, my 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 (laughs) brother's wife. Like everyone said, they liked brother better. And then like maybe three or four months later, my mom was talking to me and she's like, "Oh, I just didn't like brother very much. I thought Strange (laughs) Thing was much better." And I was like, "Oh God, mom! Like really? Do you have to say that?" (laughs) Dear Lord. And and then I had lunch with uh, with my brother recently. And I was like, yeah, mom just told me that she likes strange thing way better than brother. And then she's like, he's like, oh, you're, she's crazy. I like brother way better. So, so I don't know if my brother just knows that's the right thing to say to me. And he's just saying that to me to make me feel good. Or if he actually thinks I'm going to just believe that he actually thinks that, but I've heard from a lot of other people that they like brother more than strange thing too. So I don't know. I guess you're right. It's just a thing. But, uh, I think you can't let that like, like in the Fred, I don't know if you guys all watch the Fred documentary, but like Fred talks about that in the documentary. Like, you know, you can't let, um, your desire for success and fame control you because then if you do, it'll just eat you up alive and it'll just destroy you. And I, I think that's a really great lesson. Um, is like, you can't let that stuff drive you as an artist or a performer. You just have to do what you want to do. And, you know, just keep on doing it and not let those things distract you, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Cause you can't, that's again, we talk about this over and over again. You can't control the outcome. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. You can't control people like it. You can't control if it gets a great distribution deal or makes it in the festival or critics like it, like any of that stuff is like so beyond your control. So you have to be able to pursue these things in like in a, with a different mindset. And so you have very specific goals for what you want to do in your filmmaking career and brother fulfills those goals better than strange thing for you. And that's all you can do. And right. like you should do that on the next film and the film after that and film after that. And don't think about like what are audiences going to want to see? So was there anything else that you want to talk about with, with Isaac? Any yeah. I want to okay. know now, Isaac, that you've had all this experience uh, with distribution and making your own film. Like how are you going to do it different? next time well i guess it depends on the project but i do think right now i'm looking to make another documentary and i'm kind of in an in-between spot i've been working on one that i've kind of been working on off and on for a few years about an artist sculptor who was also a professor at cca and so i've kind of been using some of this time now when i'm not working to edit that but i don't think that has any real distribution potential and i don't also don't know exactly what that might just be a 12 minute thing that plays at his gallery openings. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of my only side project right now. And I'm kind of on the lookout for the next thing. And my head is still in the documentary space. It's not like, okay, now I'm ready to pick up one of these scripts I left behind a few years ago and make it good. It's like, this seems to be kind of working out this path of, of, of doing doc stuff. And it's all stories to me. And that's something you guys say on the show. And I'm quoting, uh, other documentary filmmakers here, uh, Dan Geller and Dana Goldfine who done, they did something ventured and, uh, the Galapagos affair and stuff. And they're like, people talk about documentary films and narrative films. They're like, no, it's all narrative films. There's uh, fiction and nonfiction, but a documentary has got to have a narrative. Like you're, you're watching a story still and someone's telling you that story. I don't feel any like compromise and I don't, I don't feel like that's it. I'll, I'll never go back to making fiction films. I feel like, okay, right now I'm in a space where nonfiction is good. And at some point maybe I'll, try and tell another fiction story but i'm enjoying working on non-fiction narratives right now and i'm looking around and it does it does have to sorry if i'm rambling now but it does it is going to have to satisfy both of the like this is something i need to 
I, I want to tell a story about and I feel particularly qualified to tell this story, but also it's something that has a built-in audience. I think it's going to have to be that because the goal is still one career. You know what I mean? And I don't just have like a giant bank account where I can just make stuff and uh, there's right. there's no model for sustainability. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Um, yeah. And so that's what I'm well, on the I lookout think... for. It doesn't have to be, sorry to interrupt, it doesn't have to be a musician, but it needs to be something that I feel like the the audience will find it. Right. And that they, yes. that they yeah, exist the, out there. And not just in a hope and pray yeah. way. Because they exist for any good movie. I do believe that, that that good movies will find an audience. But I want to give myself a little bit of an edge on that. Right. The John Truby in his book on, on Breaking Story like talks about how after you figured out what the story is that you want to tell that you're passionate about, like the next question you have to ask yourself is, does anybody want to see it? Mm-hmm. Right. And if nobody wants to see it, then you got to move on to like the next story. So just because you're passionate about it is not enough in his opinion. And I think that's kind of what you're saying too. It's like, you can be as passionate as you want or want about it, but we, us three here, uh, don't have the money to sustain a career like that. We just can't keep like sinking money. We can't ask our family to spend money on our films if we can't make, make it back. So it is, I think it is important to have that one, two punch, just like find something you're passionate about. And then second, like, can, is there an audience for it? And can I sell it? So I think you have to be smart as both an artist and a businessman, businesswoman, business person, business person. I like business Business person. person. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And Um, that's something Fred talks about too. I mean, he's, that's part of the reason I was so drawn to him is he, is kind of so great at navigating that path in his whole life and talking about how there's there's just one you and one thing, right? Like you don't don't break your life into parts like, oh, this is how I am in business and this is how I am in my art. Like it's all just <laughs> it's all one uh one path and you have to write. You're an artist or whatever and you also have to feed yourself and have a place to sleep. Right. Yep. And it should be kind of yeah. the same philosophy guiding everything yeah uh, i put it much much uh less eloquently than know, him yeah uh, exactly well you guys watch the movie yeah go watch the movie <laughs> yeah buy a copy it's funny it's too bad we you can't stream it anywhere right now but i mean you know i think you can watch the trailer and then you know you can buy the dvd if you want and then yeah i don't know eventually it'll get be streaming right and then people can can watch it but uh but yeah i mean honestly if you like uh like rock and roll or country folk rock and like not not like modern day country like old classic like Hank Williams style country, then you'll you'll love Fred Eaglesmith and then you'll really like the movie and I mean it's it's really cool because it's like a behind the scenes like look at like what life on the road is like you know for uh, a, a band that doesn't really make a lot of money you know but travels all the time so it's really it's a really interesting movie. But it has really, a I'm career. A huge fan. I mean, yes. No. Thank you for for all that. But they're yeah. not. They're also. A big success, just depending on how you want to look at it. Yeah, you know what I, I mean. I think right. it is a big to be know. able to play that much and get paid to play that much is pretty. It's pretty huge, right? You know, they, right, right. Like, they get to play music and and it have a have a career. But they're not so, sitting in a mansion somewhere in the Hollywood Hills, uh, sipping champagne and driving fancy cars. Like their life is this is music, and they're paying for it. Like it's. You know, they they have like the bare minimum to just kind of survive and make it happen, right? 
That's like kind of the, uh, their idea of success. Right, right. And people, but people love Fred. Like he is still a, a celebrity. You know what I mean? It's not like, mm-hmm. it's still to- like this totally romantic kind of thing. And I'm still like, hey, Fred Eaglesmith has talked to me on the phone yesterday. And, uh, <laughs> right. and you know, so there's yeah. like, we kind of tend to think of things like, well, if you're not, this came up the other day, right? On, on the show where it's like, if you're not Steven Spielberg, you're nothing. Or if you're not, you know, Bob Dylan right. or Bruce Springsteen, you're nothing. But it's like, well, there's only, there's like three of those guys. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. What about the rest all of be us? That. Yeah, exactly. I think also for me, like watching the movie, because I, I watched the Fred Doc twice in the last few days. And uh, yeah, just seeing him behind the wheel of the bus and driving the bus and changing the oil on his bus and doing all this stuff. It's like, yeah, he's still a celebrity and he's the star of the show. But like, it makes him feel so much more like just a regular guy when you watch the documentary and like the way that he talks. And he's just sort of a down to earth person. So it's sort of for me, it kind of takes his celebrity a little bit away from it which i think is nice mm-hmm. but uh but yeah you still he's the he is the star of the show like he is he is the man so yeah it's uh it's interesting but i think that's what's so brilliant is that he's like yeah he is that that person but he's also just you know another hard-working member of the of the team of the band mm-hmm. you know so well so cool. people want to buy the documentary where where can they go to get Fred it com and his click on his store where and everything's listed alphabetically there so you got to click over a few times to the Fred Eaglesmith Traveling Steam Show DVD, or and and check his tour schedule and see him the, the next time he comes through your town because he plays a lot and it's always a great yeah, show. Yeah, the show's fun. I mean, if you watch the trailer, you could probably get a sense of what the show's like. Cause it's like music and comedy, and it's just it's pretty cool. But uh, yeah, so you gave the Fred Eaglesmith uh, information. We'll have it on the on the website, but or on the show notes. But then we'll also have a link to the Day of Vengeance. Um, you know, uh, Amazon Prime link too so i'm sure a lot of people have prime so they can watch the movie and check it out too and see see what you made when you were 19 you know we'll put your website too and you know you can check out your work and the kind of stuff you're working on now in addition to the fred eaglesmith and everything but uh is there anything else you want to add anything else you want to share or say or whatever i don't think so i think we covered a lot of it i feel like (laughs) i need a second cup of coffee and i could keep going but uh right exactly yeah it, this is good because like it's purging it's purging all the the evil from your career out into the world and now people can hear it and you can let it go and you can move on right and right. i and i hope that you know there are some people i talk uh, where anyway where that story especially the day of engine story can be useful to people like that's why i would like to share people are very secretive about numbers and things like that they really are but mm-hmm. uh if anybody who wants to kind of hear more about or wants if there's any kind of um council or anything or someone's going through the exact same thing yeah uh you can find my contact on my website or my twitter handle is lagoonside news because my production company is lagoonside pictures but then i really just i don't know lagoonside news. don't tweet about movie stuff that often <laughs> well thank you for sharing your story i mean it's really it's valuable i i really enjoyed it so at least you have one person that I think we'll benefit from it. All right. So thank you. Thank you guys very much for having me on. Yeah, man. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Check out our website, makingmoviesishard.com, where you can find links to the things we talked about. And if you want to get in contact with us, send us an email at podcast at makingmoviesishard.com or find us on Twitter and Facebook with the handle MMIH podcast. And if you like the show, please leave a review on iTunes. We haven't gotten a new review in probably like two months. So I feel very unwanted. 
unlocked, <laughs> and I would really like to see one. Thank you, Isaac, again for coming on, and thanks, Alric, and we'll talk to everyone next week. Yeah, thanks, guys. Is that is that a, are we out? Yeah, That's unless it. you want to say out. thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, then we'll That's squeeze right. it in. Just say thank you, and we'll squeeze it in right there. Oh, mm. uh, yeah, I feel like. It's not my place to say thank you as the... How about you're welcome? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Right.